Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Let's Talk Supply Chain. We're back with another fabulous mini-series. These mini-series podcasts are our opportunity to really get to know the leaders in our industry and to do a deeper dive into the advancements, challenges, and changes happening in supply chain right now. I always enjoy them, and I know that you do too, based on all the amazing feedback that we've been getting. Our latest mini-series is in partnership with IANA, the Intermodal Association of North America. Over the next four episodes, our What Does Intermodal Mean to You series is going to take a closer look at the intermodal industry and its benefits, the equipment and technology that serves it, and all of the different people involved. Today in episode one, I am speaking to Jim Newsom, president and CEO of the South Carolina Ports Authority in Charleston about the intermodal industry. We'll be finding out exactly what the intermodal industry is and how it works, looking at how e-commerce has changed the landscape of intermodal in recent years and learning more about IANA and its role within the industry. So welcome to the show, Jim. Sarah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I am excited to have you here because I know you guys are doing amazing things over in South Carolina. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Tell us who you are, what you do, and what is the one thing that would surprise people about the intermodal industry? Well, I'm the president and CEO of the South Carolina Ports Authority. I'm the, the in Charleston. I'm the fifth leader in the history of that organization. It was formed in 1942. Um, and I'm sort of a refugee of the container shipping industry. I was the CEO of Hapag Lloyd in the Americas, which is a large container shipping line. I think it's the fifth largest in the world today prior to joining the port here. Uh, but I grew up in the port business. My father, I'm from Savannah, and my father was the number two guy at the Georgia Ports Authority. So that pretty much the reason that I got in this business and went to school to be a supply chain major to to do the type of work that I do today. Um, and I think that it, what is surprising to people about intermodal, I mean, it's, it's, I think for a lot of people, it's just an unclear term. I mean, it doesn't come across naturally, but I think that it's obviously the conveyance of goods by, you know, more than one mode of transportation and leveraging the strength of those various modes of transportation to provide a good product for the, for the end user customer. And it's, to me, it's really the confluence of modes of transportation, be it, you know, water and rail and truck, basically, to, to provide an efficient product. I would absolutely agree with you on that. We need to get a little bit more clear as to the, what the word intermodal actually means. But I'm really glad you shared that story because I come from a family business as well. And I always say that supply chain is in my blood because for as long as I remember, we've been talking about the industry uh, at the dinner table. Well, I may tell you something. I'm the second generation in this industry, but neither of my kids wanted any part of it. So I don't know if that's good news or bad news or... They just didn't like how much I traveled and worked and whatever. They wanted to do something different, although they chose very challenging professions. So uh, it's an important industry. It's an industry where we need to continue to increase the professionalism of the people who are in it. And I think that's really one of the main roles of IONA is to provide a platform for increasing that knowledge and professionalism and acceptance of, of, of intermodal. 
I would absolutely agree with you. So then why don't we talk about the players? You know, the indus- the intermodal industry has a variety of supply chain players. Can you fill us in on the types of major companies that are involved within intermodal? Well, sure. I think if you look at intermodal, and, and let's just look at it in the context of the United States, because that's what IANA is charged at doing is a large intermodal footprint in, in the United States. But obviously, it starts with railroads and trucks, I think, fundamentally. Uh, It also involves container shipping lines today who move about half of the intermodal freight is international intermodal containers today. Um, It impacts ports who handle that um, freight on and off ships and convey it to the domestic transportation modes to move it efficiently. Um, certainly involves 3PLs, people who wholesale, um, third-party logistics who wholesale rail space from railroads to provide their own product to, to end users. And then finally, uh, you know, beneficial cargo owners, people of that nature um, who actually move freight uh, through intermodal transportation, and hopefully that's going to grow. It should grow. And then last not least, support, um, support businesses such as maintenance and repair. We just you know, very deservedly gave the Silver Kingpin Award today to Vince Marino of uh, Container Maintenance, who is one of the major providers in that area. So there's a lot of touch points. I think that's the the challenge in this type of transportation, you know, that we're in is that there are so many players that work together to provide a product. It's not like a car plant where everybody's under the same paycheck to provide a product end to end. And then I've just talked about the international side. So there's equally a domestic side, which obviously wouldn't have the shipping line so much involved in ports, but but would certainly have the other players uh, to provide a product. There's a lot of transloading of international cargo that goes into domestic uh, containers for conveyance on the domestic side of, of intermodalism. So I just think it's a, it's a very diverse concept and one that's maybe not intuitively obvious to people when they, they first hear the word. Yeah, and just understanding and knowing how many people are involved, you know, and and when you talk about domestic from one side of the country maybe to the other, but then when you, you when you blow it out into the international arena, we're talking country to country, and every step of the way, there's somebody that's, you know, a part of that package or that product moving to you. And you also mentioned the maintenance and repair side, which we're going to be talking about in episode two. And I don't quite think that people realize how important that is and, and how it impacts you as a person, you know, traveling down the highway every single day. And so I'm interested to get into that next episode. So let's talk about the benefits. What are some of the benefits of intermodal freight transportation? Well, I think the major benefit is that it leverages the uh, unique strengths of the various modes of transportation. If you look at railroads, what is their strength? It's it's high-density transportation, long trains over a really fixed and finite intermodal rail network. I mean, you know, most people look at a railroad's map and they think that intermodal can go anywhere on that map. That's really not the case. In fact, prob- I would estimate that five maximum 10% of, depending on which railroad, Western railroads, probably more, five to 10% are, are really devoted to intermodal transportations because it's so dense. Right. But I think the advantage of railroad transportation for containers is that once 
the containers on a train, it's pretty predictable for the most part, barring weather, things of that nature. You can count on it getting from terminal to terminal in the most efficient way, and it's cheaper per mile. And then it, it sort of dovetails with truck, which is a very a more flexible mode of transportation. It's a little more expensive, but obviously there are only so many places you can send a container by rail. The truck enables you to distribute it to a number of origins and destinations, or from you know from origins or two destinations in the most efficient way possible. And, and it makes use of, of their strength, which I think is flexibility. So the combination of the two, if, if used properly, marketed properly, managed properly, should provide a very reliable service with a, a lot of geographic capability. Yeah, and I would also throw in their transit time as well, right? So if you're if you're looking to move something from one end of the country to another and you're looking to do that by by truck, you know, it takes a little bit longer. You've got team drivers whereas rail the rail system is just that much easier and that much quicker to to move cross country. Well, certainly. I mean, there's been a lot of change in the rail network. There's this thing called precision schedule railroading now where the railroads are really trying to tighten up and and make their networks the the, the most efficient that they can. But clearly, you know, with the hours of service limitations in trucking and, and the 34-hour reset, uh, there are more and more considerations as far as sending trucks long haul. So it's really ideal to be able to use rail for what it's good for, like a leg LA to Chicago or a leg from Norfolk to, you know, Norfolk to Chicago, Detroit, somewhere like that. And then use truck for the shorter distances. We, we've got examples in our inland port network where people who truck containers to our port would get one trip a day. And now because of the, our inland port network, they get two trips a day. So in a way, that's a 100% increase in the efficiency of the, the, the truck network. And I think as we all know, uh, younger people are not necessarily aspiring to be truckers. Um, so we, 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 conceivably face a shortage in, in truckers going forward. Yeah, yeah. I've heard a lot about that in the conversations that I've been having with supply chain professionals, you know, across the different industries. But we're also hearing about infrastructure. You know, we hear a lot or I hear a lot about the need for more and better transportation infrastructure. What are some of these needs from a large East Coast port perspective? Well, I think the uh, the study that is often... Um, Cited is, I think, the American Society of Civil Engineers, which says that our infrastructure globally is, is a country is about 25th. Uh, you know, you might, if you're a skeptic, you might say they're talking their book because they build infrastructure. So, you know, why not say it's bad? It gives them more work. I think, I think they're right in what they say. So what we have dealt with in the port industry is the development of big container ships. And this is something that's really happened over 20 years time, you know, from my time in container shipping back at the end of the last century, 19, you know, 95, 1999, we weren't going to build ships bigger than 5,000 TUs. And today we've got 24,000 TU ships on the water. So wow. for us, the, the infrastructure challenge is twofold. It's one to assimilate the growth that we anticipate. And, and, and we in the Southeast believe that, the, the Southeast market is a good market to be in the port business. We think we'll grow double the U.S. port market over time. So, so I think the challenge is to plan for that growth through new infrastructure. Port infrastructures have 
is expensive in the United States, as you have read, I'm sure. And then at the same time, also be able to retool our existing facilities that have been handling containers for 40 years or so and make them ready for the big container ships. Uh, because every dimension of a port changes when you have bigger ships, both the harbor depth that's needed, the, the size of the cranes that you employ and the number of cranes that you have, the strength of wharfs, the stacking capacity on terminals. Because port land is scarce, it's hard to permit. Um, so you need to make the best use. I mean, one of the main metrics in our business is sort of TUs or throughput per acre, how to, how to use our space more intelligently. So mm-hmm. um, lots of challenges. Uh, these, are, these are not uh, faint of heart issues. I mean, our port over six years' time, uh, by the end of next year, will have invested over $2 billion in, in port infrastructure. Wow. Um, and that's that's a lot of money. So, uh, mm-hmm. but, it, you know, the, it's the old thing. If you don't do it, um, someone else will, and, and, and you won't have the benefit of those ship calls. So, in a, particularly in the southeast ports, I think you see um, port infrastructure being part of the economic development machinery of states. Uh, global businesses like to locate near ports. Um, mm-hmm. BMWs invested $10 billion in the state of South Carolina because they were near a port. Um, so, so it's a it's a very important issue. It, it has a high profile and a lot of recognition as to its importance. Yeah, I heard that uh, Boeing did that as well. So, why do you think that is? What's the advantage of being near a port? Well, I, I mean, Boeing is a unique case in the sense that they they're certainly here because we have a port. Having, having said that, they don't use the port a lot. They have a have a supply chain that they use you know, extended 747s to supply most of their parts. So they're an outlier in that regard. But but I think in, in terms of global sourcing, global manufacturing, um, businesses want to locate closer to ports. I mean, it, it improves their reliability. Um, I think also that a lot of states and, you know, South Carolina is certainly one of them. Alabama's another one, just as two examples, not disrespecting anyone by not mentioning them. Uh, there are states that have really focused on attracting manufacturing and distribution businesses because we were really never headquarters locations. It's not like, you know, Procter & Gamble is going to put their headquarters in Charleston. I don't think that's going to happen. But but we've got a lot of land, good workforce, very favorable um, business climate in terms of taxation uh, and good quality of life. I mean, it doesn't snow down here, so a lot of people don't uh, – <laughs> Don't like snow, you know. So anyway, I, don't, I can't understand. I'm one of them. It. Yeah, I don't like it either, by the way. But so anyway, I think we we have a good environment for people. You know, supply chain management. If you think about it, it's about risk management. You know, people locate facilities where they think they will not uh, incur any risk in doing business or, or have problems. And I think we've been able to prove over a long course of time here that the ports in the southeast work really well. Um, they're outfitted properly with equipment to, to be able to handle growth and in, in the challenges of the supply chain. Yeah, and I think it's an important um, part of the conversation that's going on right now. You know, supply chain professionals and businesses alike are taking a look at the global landscape that they've previously had from a manufacturing perspective. And so previously before the pandemic, you know, they were they were manufacturing for a global 
supply chain. And now they're looking to man- manufacture for a local supply chain. And so if they are looking to bring back that manufacturing um, into North America, I think it's a good place to really consider being closer to ports. I think, you know, not only the benefits that you're talking about, but also from a cost perspective too, right? Because, you know, the transportation that um, has to take place from your facility potentially to the to the port, um, you know, could be could could incur a large cost. Well, Sarah, that's right. I think, but I think one has to realize that a lot of this discussion about reshoring manufacturing has a lot to do with personal protective equipment and and you know medical goods and things that were really not available because that supply chain was in China. But mm-hmm. I think when you look at the broad scope of retail sourcing, and particularly when you get into private label sourcing. Um, it's very hard to avoid China. And I, I tend, I'm probably in the minority in this and maybe I'll be proven wrong. I'm often wrong and never in doubt, but <laughs> I think it's going to be very difficult to substitute for China in any rapid way. Certainly there'll be some movement of manufacturing to Southeast mm-hmm. Asia. There was al- already that plus one type of strategy, but the infrastructure in Vietnam and, and Cambodia and Thailand and other places does not nearly measure up to China. Mm-hmm. So I'd be, I'd be careful in extrapolating that trend. I don't, China's still 55, 60% of the Asia trade and I'm, and, and they're growing a middle class of 500 million people, which drives exports from America. So yeah. I, I think I wouldn't give up on them. No. And it's definitely not something that is going to happen overnight. I, I was just really getting to the heart of supply chain professionals, taking a look at their strategies and just the different things to consider too. So you talk about, you know, $2 billion. So what does that mean? What are some of the projects that the South Carolina Ports Authority is working on and who is paying the bill? Well, two billion dollars means I get a lot of gray hair. Number one, <laughs> but um, besides that, um, so we are a an enterprise agency. We're owned. We're a business owned by the state. We have to earn money and borrow money in our own name and, and balance sheet to build infrastructure. So um, we are basically building the first new container terminal that will will go into operation in the United States in March of next year, since 2009. Uh, We had to retrofit our existing major terminal, which is the Wando terminal, spent about $500 million there. Um, We deepened our harbor. Uh, We're deepening our harbor. The Army Corps is deepening our harbor uh, with our cooperation, and there's a cost share involved in that. So the state of South Carolina has... So the principle here is that we build inside the fence infrastructure. We build terminal infrastructure uh, that that we use to handle containers and other types of cargo. The state builds outside the fence infrastructure. So a harbor deepening, an access road to a terminal, that would be done by the state. So the state's put up $350 million for the harbor deepening for our share, the state share, and then $170 million for an access road, a dedicated access road to the new terminal, which was the condition of the permit. So it's a lot of money. Uh, again, we're fortunate to be in a state where we're the major port. I mean, some states have 15 ports. You know, it's hard to apportion, you know, resources that way. And again, we've proven, I think, to be a major economic development engine to bring good paying jobs and to, to have a track record where we deliver things. So I think we've been well supported by our state. 
but but again, two billion is mainly our balance sheet on the port in the state. Another another five hundred million. Yeah, and it, you know, it sounds like you are doing a lot for the economy there as well. And uh, I'm excited to see what your what the the projects you know bring to the state as well. So. I keep hearing the term inland port. You're using the, you have used the word, uh, words inland port as well. Can you explain what an inland port is and what it is designed to do? Well, an inland port is really a, a short haul rail vehicle that is designed to extend a port facility like we have in Charleston to the interior of the state. Um, so if you look at our inland port in Greer, I mean, I think that's the most notable one. We opened it in 2013. It does 150,000 rail lifts today, which is significant. It, I mean, it's well bigger than any other port-owned inland port. Uh, and it, it really makes advantage of an overnight train service to provide a very reliable service, you know, to customers wanting to get their goods close to their facility. Uh, when BMW uses our inland port in Greer, the, the, the containers get off the, the rail car and onto the ground there, and they're within 3.6 miles of that facility. So um, when they can get a container, if they decide right now at 4.30 in the afternoon that they need a container, they have to have it by 6 o'clock. That's a service guarantee. So it's a very fine-timed sort of high-service distribution that these inland ports provide. Also shortens truck hauls, you know, as I said earlier, maximizes the the truck truck capacity and infrastructure. So it's really been a winning concept for us. I think we, um, and not only for us, I mean, I think you see Savannah, you've seen Norfolk um, do the same. In our view is anytime that a railroad wants to take advantage of offering a short haul rail service, it's overnight. We need to take advantage of that. Uh, if, you go, if I go back to my transportation education at Tennessee in the 70s, you would never use rail for under 500 miles. Today we're doing 200 miles, 160 miles. So, so the parameters wow. change, but but I think a lot of it's driven also by the anticipation that that we just can't rely on trucks to to move every container. I mean, we we've gone in my 11 years here from moving about 12 percent by rail of our container volume to about 25 percent. Wow! I, and, and a lot of that is uh, a lot of that is for the from to and from the two inland ports that we operate. So that's incredible. I mean, it, over the 11 years, you've more than doubled that percentage. We've doubled the percentage, which is quadrupling the volume. So so that's even more impressive. When we did about 85,000 moves, we do 350,000 a day. So that's a pretty impressive wow. development. Yeah, that's a really impressive number. So then, you know, with change fa uh, happening so much faster these days, what do you think the next maybe, what, five years would look like? I mean, if you quadrupled in 11 years and everything's just changing that much faster, what what are you predicting over the next five years? Well, I, I think generally speaking, and certainly intermodal gets caught up in this, I mean, we're, we're seeing a whole... Um, renaissance in terms of retail distribution i mean we yeah. and, and and you know we discern that i mean we have been a manufacturing port we we doubled our volume in my 11 years here based on the doubling of jobs in south carolina of advanced manufacturing bmw as i said invested 10 billion here since 1994 but we we recognize some years back as we were embarking on our investment plan here that there that 
these manufacturing locations would not double in size again. I don't think anyone's going to tell you that BMW is going to double their their footprint in Greer. It's just not going to happen. So we had to get more in the retail distribution, and we started working on that. And now this pandemic has really uh, brought that to the fore. I mean, the major retailers that are omnichannel capable, you know, meaning they can do e-commerce and they have bricks and mortar as well. I mean, for Amazon fulfillment centers, their store, um, they're gaining share. And with that, they're sort of revitalizing the distribution network. There's not enough warehouse capacity today. Most of the experts will tell you. Uh, and I think that will lead to a, the fact that the supply chain has to change to adapt to that. And maybe and I think intermodal can play a good part in that. I mean, where there are high, high density lanes, I think intermodal can play a good part in evening out the supply chain because e-commerce is unpredictable, right? And it, mm-hmm. and it, and it needs, in a way, it needs fewer nodes in some sense because a, a lot of it is done on courier transportation, things of that nature. So I think we're learning the new world of, of, of e-commerce distribution supporting the big retailers. You've seen in our case, uh, Walmart just announced a three million square foot uh, import distribution center here in, in the Charleston area. And I think that's in, indicative of the fact that there's just not enough capacity today among the big retailers who have gained share in this, uh, in this pandemic environment. It was happening anyway with e-commerce. Uh, e-commerce trend, but I think what we've learned now is that if you can't go to a movie theater or a bar, you'll sit home on your computer and buy buy stuff. You know? Yeah. <laughs> did you do that? Because I did a little bit of that. I I I, I will not uh, disclose that, but yes, I can. <laughs> my my American Express bill would tell you that I did. Yeah. So. <laughs> that is fair. That is fair. So then, last but not least, you know, technology is really making an impact across the supply chain industry. And I'm sure it's making an impact on intermodal as well, Um, especially, you know, an impact on the ports and how the ports work. So how is technology changing not only how the ports work, but how the intermodal industry works as well? Well, I think in in significant ways. And I think we, Sarah, we make a distinction between technology and automation, you know, sort of terminal automation, things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we have chosen, although you can automate fully a container terminal. I mean, I can take you to Hamburg, Germany or Rotterdam in the Netherlands. You'll see a fully automated terminal with very few people. Uh, in our world here on the East Coast, it doesn't, in our view, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do that. We have a very efficient and productive model today. We're a good employer. We're able to hire really good people and pay them well um, and provide a great product with a lot of flexibility. So automation makes your, your, your operation more rigid, takes a lot of the flexibility out of the, the operation. And it's about 30, 30 to 35% more in investment. So uh, we have not determined there'd be a return from that. So we've disdained that. We wanted to keep our sort of traditional RTG manual RTG crane model here in, in, in our port. Technology is a whole different world. We, um, we obviously employ a lot of technology. We receive and deliver trucks remotely today. I mean, we have a kitchen environment where, where we greet truckers by at a kiosk, basically, not unlike you get a boarding pass. And, and, and that really saved us in this pandemic, by the way. If we did not have 
that sort of distance um, in our gate system, I think we would have had a hard time staying open because I think the virus would have spread through the face-to-face contact. So um, we're very fortunate in using technology. We're, we're constantly upgrading. Again, we use technology is not an end in itself. It's a, I think it's a way to make yourself more efficient. How can we stack containers more tightly? Um, how can we be more productive, you know, predictability-wise in terms of loading ships and discharging ships, things of that nature? So we're heavily into technology. We're having this conversation today because Kelsey developed a really cool knowledge about this sort of remote technology that we, we're doing today. Um, and I think that's going to be with us for a while. I don't think that's going to, I don't think that will ever change, in fact. No, absolutely. And I think we're going to be talking more about technology and its effects on the intermodal industry as a whole in episode three. With a mission to promote the growth of efficient intermodal freight transportation through innovation, education, and dialogue, IANA is the only organization that represents the combined interests of the intermodal freight transportation industry. With members from the supplier, rail, 3PL, marine, and motor carrier sectors, they're building a truly connected industry to create a more efficient and innovative supply chain environment for all of us. For more information about IANA, check out their website at intermodal.org. Thank you to Jim for joining me on the show today. It was a really insightful look at an industry people might not fully appreciate, and I cannot wait to find out more in the rest of the series that's coming up. So don't forget to join us again next week for episode two of our What Does Intermodal Mean to You mini-series in partnership with IANA. Thank you so much, Jim, for joining me on the show today. Thanks, Sarah. Come and visit us sometime. Oh, I definitely will. I want to see what that port is all about. I really enjoyed all of your insightful takes on the industry in itself, you know, what's happening at the ports and that, you know, it's it's an industry of people and collaboration and I can't wait to find out more. So don't forget to join us again next week for episode two of our What Does Intermodal Mean to You mini series in partnership with IANA. <laughs>